0: and this is The K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one after the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I sometimes write for Films Fatale, and my main interests are no-budget cinema and 70s cinema.
1: My name is Andreas. I am the creator and one of the writers over at Films Fatale. I love art house and international cinema, but I also love a little bit of everything else in between.
2: I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Fatale. I like international cinema, lost film, and the golden age of Hollywood. And so for today's topic, I was thinking a lot because I'm at that age where my Instagram is full of pictures of babies and weddings and engagements. And I was thinking about all these life events, which we're marking more and more now that um, the pandemic's wound down and we can have the gatherings and parties that we used to. And so I thought it'd be cool to do an episode where we go through movies about a birth... Movies about a wedding and movies about a death or maybe multiple deaths. I don't know. You do you. And so we'll start go in that order. And I think James is going to go first with his.
0: Yes. So, yeah, it kind of took me a minute to figure out how I wanted to interpret it, because I I remember you kind of and I'm using it for the title. You said that subject was uh, hatches, matches and dispatches, which which sounded so awesome.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I read that phrase somewhere. I think it's an old phrase and thought it was cute.
0: So I got to the hatches part, I was like, okay, because I have to do something that's very much me, and so I decided to go with uh, what I think was probably the most divisive film of 2017, Darren Aronofsky's Mother.
1: Oh, okay. Of course. I knew that was coming, as soon as you said 2017 and divisive, I was like, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting story in the aspect of, you know, it. it's about this couple, by Harvey R. Bardem and... Jennifer Lawrence and probably one of Harvey Bardem's finest performances. I thought he just absolutely slayed this performance. But you know, there are a couple. He's a he's a poet, and uh, she's renovating his house. And then, you know, they ended up they end up getting a. Uh, I don't want to say bombarded they they end up with there's strangers at their house and then it starts from that and then it escalates into like typical darren aridowski chaos. but one of the plot part of the plot is uh jennifer's character is pregnant and then they make such a big deal about it like there's you know all these people coming over and then just all this chaos ensues and uh, i'm not gonna spoil anything uh in the film because you'd have to see it though i don't always recommend it to everybody but i think it's um really interesting because it has all the hallmarks of a Darren Aronofsky classic, like it's got you know the you know the horror elements. It's got you know the religious allegories, and uh, but it all turned out to be kind of a climate change rant, which is what inspired it. And it's basically like how you treat Mother Earth. And how you treat Mother Earth's child and how the child's treated is kind of insane and how it all plays out. But I thought it was I thought it was a really good metaphor for, you know, how you treat the things you create in general, not just when it comes to people, but just, I'd say, you know, the Earth and civilization in general.
1: Yeah. It's almost like um and I'm happy you did bring up the uh the allegories, uh, both the uh, environmental and the religious. Uh because uh yeah, Jennifer Lawrence is Mother Mother Earth, Mother Nature herself. Um and then Javier Bardem is supposed to be the misappropriation of religion. And uh Aronofsky himself is a religious man, but I I feel like he's also against institutionalized uh religion where I feel like um He's saying these are two lovely things that have been completely desecrated. You know, one's personal beliefs and, um, you know, the, the world around us. And those are two very important things from when you're born. You know, your surroundings as a theist and your surroundings as, you know, getting used to this world that you've been brought into. And the idea that this child, which again, I don't want to spoil it either, Is being brought into a very hateful, greedy, selfish environment Um, from the get-go. You know, you just know it's going to be bad. But you know, the extent that mother takes it is obviously a lot worse than anyone would have bargained for. Even if you understand religious symbolism and can figure out some of jesus Jesus's teachings in a sort of symbolic way i don't want to say more than that if you've seen the film you'll know what i'm talking about um you know it's really
0: interesting because um darren askley isn't actually religious
1: okay because uh, he certainly features it a lot in his film so maybe he has like a you know like an interest
2: yeah religion is such an important literary and symbolic item that I think it's entirely possible to be very deeply interested in religion and yet not believe in it in the sense of being religious.
0: That's true. That's true. He definitely uses that as a writing device. Well, it's often interpreted that, um, that Terrence Malick is a Christian, but he has never actually confirmed whether or not he affiliates or aligns with religion or not.
2: And he shouldn't have to.
0: The spiritual elements of his film just kind of shine through. But yeah, with Aronofsky, it's interesting, and it and it dates back to Pi. Like, think about the whole thing with
1: uh, all with the Orthodox uh, Jews, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. and uh, the Torah being part of this whole thing with you know like the golden ratio and all that stuff. So it's like, and I think he does it really well because he has some really direct allegories because he 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 directly references the whole uh, you know story of Cain and Abel.
1: Yes. With the uh, Donald Gleason and the other brother. I don't remember who they are. Um, and, unless we forget that he actually made his own version of Noah, which uh, maybe to your point, uh, maybe wasn't told by somebody who is explicitly religious because that film pissed off a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Well, like that's uh, that's like a lot of his works. Yeah, that's true.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, so that that was my
1: interpretation of the the first third of this. So we kind of have something similar, except not similar at all. I didn't go for a very literal example either, except at least yours has like you know the concept of birth and conception and you know bearing a child. Um, I was thinking of so many different films of you know involving a child and all of that, but. Then I started to want to find something that made me feel like a child again and wide-eyed and not necessarily something for children. Um, There's one particular film where I'm like glued to it photographically because of how much I'm looking at, how much I feel inspired, but at the same time, it's also very amusing. And I love how amusing this film is. I went with Jacques Tati's Playtime, his magnum opus, and... If you haven't seen it, it's a 60s film. Uh, it's a comedy, but a very insanely well shot comedy like it's one of the most breathtaking looking films I've ever seen. Basically it's one of these films that's begged to be seen on a bi- on a big screen and you have to watch it more than once because there's like sometimes like 10 different visual jokes happening at once. And the scope of this film is just so big. And basically, there's not a hell of a lot of a plot. It's kind of just a series of vignettes of you just being dumped into these scenarios. Uh, First off, have either of you seen or heard of Playtime?
2: I've heard of it. I've I've never seen it.
1: Oh, well... Uh, maybe when uh, both of your plates are lined light, up a little bit and you're not dealing with so much, I might have to recommend that in a smorgasbord, just saying. It's uh, close to three hours, if I'm not mistaken. Um, oh, boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it's just, unlike it's a comedy unlike any I've ever seen. And it's like the one film where everything is, its it's a satire, so everything looks familiar, but it's not so like... Uh, fancy seats but as soon as you sit in them they like keep a mold of whoever sat in them or like cars going around uh, a roundabout but they go in such a such a static way that they almost look confined like a carousel there are so many like interesting things and the ways that Jacques Dutty changes everyday life in this film to me is what I felt like as far as I could remember when I was a baby like a like an imaginative child being dumped into this world and turning mundane things into something exciting and just not really having a rhyme or reason for how anything functioned. I just knew that I liked it and there's not much dialogue either, so it's not really like a talkative film. you kind of go into this thing wide eyed and looking around it to me that's the closest to like being a baby that. I can recall, because I do not remember a lot from when I was a child, unlike uh, some people. Like, my sister, for instance, has, like, photographing memory from when she was, like, a baby, and, like, actually remembers a lot of stuff, and I don't really get how. Not me. After five, sure. Before five years old, don't remember a damn thing. So, this is the closest that it gets. Jack Dottie's playtime.
2: That's an interesting take. I never thought of that question that way, but I think it's... Definitely an interesting discussion.
1: Yeah. uh, Again, because I was trying to think of more literal ones where it's like, you know, somebody conceiving, having birth, um, and bringing a child into the world. But the other one that I was considering was, like, Blue Velvet, where it's, like, the idea of maturation, where somebody is no longer a child and they're, like, introduced to, like, the the adult world. Um, But then that's a little bit too on the nose as well. So I felt like this was, like, the most different take on... The theme that I could have come with. But my other ones are a little bit more literal, don't worry.
2: Well, mine is extremely literal because there is an actual birth in it. And yes, this is the second week in a row that we've had a film with a literal birth filmed. And that is Window, Water, Baby, Moving by Stan Brakhage, late 1950s. Stan Brakhage was one of the greatest experimental filmmakers of all time. If you've heard his name on this podcast before, that's because I freak out every time Cannibal the Musical gets mentioned because he was inexplicably in that. It was great. But he has a stellar reputation. And one of his early films was Window, Water, Baby, Moving, where he filmed the birth of his first child. It is beautifully lit. It is gorgeous. It is unbelievably intimate. Like, um, you have to have a strong stomach to watch it, let's put it that way. But it is a very well-done film, and you can just see the connection between him and his wife. I I do wonder how his wife felt about all this. Because after the baby's born, he he takes the baby from her and hands her the camera, and she has to film him, so, like, dude, really? But it's just gorgeous to look at, and... I think really makes a case for the intimacy of home and family to be present during birth.
1: Oh yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's one of the greatest short films and documentary related films I've ever seen. Um, Yeah, just to get the problematic stuff aside, you do have to wonder what it feels like to give birth and suddenly be handed this camera because your husband wants to be on film, I guess. (laughs) From what I know, that she wasn't like the most comfortable with this going on but I guess she uh, allowed it anyway um okay and they now, did it again
2: for their third child I think
1: that I did not know actually yeah, they made another film having said that um and it's not just for this film I believe Stan Brackets just doesn't use sound in his films period so this is a completely mute film void of sound um but in this film particularly is that and your brain starts to fill in all of the uh all of the sounds that it does not hear it's such an effective experience. Like, it's uh, such a celebration, such a moving, moving mm. film.
2: And it's so up close. Like, warning to anybody checking it out, you really do have to be prepared for some graphic imagery going into this.
1: You see virtually everything, because uh, Sam Brackage is an artist, but he's also a documentarian here. So that that term specifically, he documents everything.
2: <laughs> yes. Have you seen it, James?
1: I have not.
2: Okay, well, it's worth a look.
1: And it's like what like nine minutes like it's very short.
2: Yeah, it's quite short and I think it's fairly easily accessible.
1: Yeah, like I think it's even on like YouTube like legally and everything like it's it's an exquisite if you have the stomach for it, it's one of the greatest um, depictions of birth in any film, documentary or narrative that I've ever seen. So I think it's a, that's a fantastic pick to close out this close out this first round.
2: All right, so then we get to our next life stage, which is the wedding or marriage. So same order.
1: Absolutely, uh, James, you cool with that? Yeah, I'm good with it. Okay, so what is your uh, your film that takes on marriage and and the holy union, and why is it also mother?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, imagine if every pick was mother because oh, I mean, literally it could, could be. go for every single one. But no, <laughs> You're <fair enough>. so <laughs> so. Uh, so I decided to pick a film. I'm pretty sure I mentioned it. I know I've mentioned it. I don't remember if it was like a random recommendation or if it was actually part of something. But I decided to go with Lars von Trier's Breaking the Waves.
1: Oh, Ooh, yeah.
0: okay. Because I think it's definitely, it definitely is a movie that really shows what kind of things a marriage can weather. But it also kind of opens a conversation as far as, you know, where people's mental health is when they get married. And, uh, it's a pretty simple film. It's about a a young Scottish woman who ends up, you know, she's kind of subject to, um, kind of unsavory psychiatric kind of
1: treatment. Like gaslighting, almost.
0: Yeah. I mean, she comes from a fairly religious community, but she ends up marrying an oil rigger who is uh, a Danish, a Danish man who's not a churchgoer. And it's, you know, despite the disapproval from her community and her church, you know, she's madly in love with him. And, uh... On the job, there's an accident and he gets injured and, uh, you know, he's bedridden. And while he's hospitalized, and I'm not sure if this is either the meds or just some weird delusions, he tells her to go sleep with other men and tell him about it. Yes. Which is really strange, but she goes along with it. Almost like it's
1: like a mission from God, which is important.
0: Yeah. And uh, and to highlight that aspect, there's uh, often scenes where she actually goes to the church and prays out loud, but she voices... The responses herself as if the answers are being sent to her, which kind of goes with the whole mental health aspect and uh you know e- each encounter she gets just kind of gets riskier and riskier, and I'm not gonna spoil the ending, but it does end tragically, but you know it's just it's just really interesting to see because. You know, it, it's the first entry in what he, River Lars Frontier, refers to as his Golden Hearts trilogy. And it's, you know, no matter what, the main, the main character or the heroine in the situation maintains her Golden Heart. And that's what it is. It's like, you can tell she is an absolute sweetheart as a person. You know, her faith and belief is very childlike. It's somebody who, despite what she's doing, it's like, it's almost like she can't do any wrong mm-hmm. because she somehow can justify what she's doing. Even if, like, her husband is kind of like, being really weird because it's because you never really know what his angle is in all this so like, I guess it just kind of shows like you know no matter what like regardless of troubling a situation like the bond of marriage can be very powerful
1: Rachel have you seen Breaking the Waves
2: no I haven't but I know it has a very stellar reputation so I was excited to hear about it
1: Breaking the Waves unfortunately um, Lars von Trier a very questionable individual um, he's like not proud of the film like he thinks it's like cheesy which is unfortunate because i would easily chalk it up to being his masterpiece um what a punishing film but unlike a lot of his other films it doesn't really feel exploitational like you yourself buy into the um the emily watson character um who's brilliant by the way um her yeah her golden heart and you want things to go well for her and yeah the whole idea of the sanctity of marriage is definitely uh definitely comes into question in something like this uh von obviously is somebody who loves to push buttons um but here if you'll you know unlike some of his other stuff like let's say the idiots um and breaking the waves his experiment actually feels like it's for a good cause like a like a interesting hypothesis as opposed to let's see how How dark I can get? It feels like you're like there's an actual genuine cause. What's the sanctity of marriage? Right. I mean, the whole Golden Hearts trilogy and all
0: is actually the stories are very dark and troubling. Despite you know these characters, you want to be happy and succeed. It's very just you know. And and it was him kind of breaking away from what he originally did because like his first three films were very much like you know stylistically and technically really great films, but he wanted to break away from that. To he he didn't want to you know just do the artsy thing. He wanted to just tell a story and not focus on the technical aspect, which is interesting because the, the picture itself has a really unique look. Like it, it looks kind of, I don't want to say odd, but it has a really unique texture
1: to the way the picture looks. And I, it's like almost a video camera.
0: Well, yeah, well, I found out how they did it. It was uh they shot it on film and they did a cut of the edit on video, but they liked the look of that so much. They actually reprint that to film. Hmm. which is why it has this kind of, it almost looks like video, but it's like this really weird hybrid of video and film.
1: And it's just the way the colors turn out. It's really cool. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great pick and Rachel, you're going to have to check that out, but uh, with caution. (laughs) It's it's very heavy. Um, On the topic of heavy films, uh, I apologize. Uh, (laughs) I had a similar train of thought, except instead of questioning, you know, the strength of marriage upon the ceremony and shortly afterwards i went with something that was more towards the end of marriage and not in a in a sense of divorce but um you know a, a healthy long marriage and what that looks like when the inevitable happens so i went with uh, michael Henneke's amour i knew we were gonna say that <laughs> emmanuel riva and jean-louis Tretignon. and part of the reason why is I recently just wrote about it for Phil's fatal you're not going to see it for another number of weeks. I'm just like really ahead with my bomb door writing but i you know I saw it obviously upon release, and I can't believe it's ten years old now at this point. jeez um I have not been able to shake off that film the entire time- like these entire last ten years. um I think it's just extraordinary with. The extremities of where a loving couple can be pushed when it comes to unforeseen circumstances. So, in the case of the film, um, they're both octogenarian, uh, former professional musicians. Uh, They deal with a couple of things, but then the wife, Emmanuel Rivas' character, has a minor stroke, goes in to be checked out. Unfortunately, is the um, the victim of malpractice and something goes wrong during the surgery and she's paralyzed in half of her body so like the rat the right half of her body I think and that puts it to question what does a loving husband do like how do we how do we go about this do I take care of her do I abandon her what do I do and to me that that's kind of the reality of, of marriage it's like it's not just the happy stuff it's knowing. This commitment, this lifelong commitment, but also having to face the uncertainty, like what makes me a good partner in times of absolute crises and i don't know if a more answer is that, but that's the thing i don 't think there is an answer, and that's that's kind of marriage at its hardest um outside of divorce relations or d- divorce situations of of course um, what does it look like when you have to make choices on behalf of your partner. What does that look like? And it's a very tough watch.
2: It's a fine film. It is. Um, And Tritignan just passed away, didn't he?
1: He did. Uh, Unfortunately, they're both passed away now. Uh, Riva was a few years ago, but Tritignan was literally like a few weeks ago, yeah.
2: Yeah, um, fun fact, when Reva was nominated for this, um, she was up against Cobenjane Wallace, and they were both the oldest and youngest nominees for Best Actress ever in the same year.
1: Yeah, because uh, Quvenzhane Wallace was like nine. Yeah, and
2: then Emmanuel Riva was in her eighties, I think.
1: Like late eighties, too, I think, yeah. or mid to late. Yeah, so, um, which I like Jennifer Lawrence, but it, it should have been Emmanuel Riva's. Sorry, just mm-hmm. just stating out, stating the facts. Um, but uh, on that note. Um, Amor was also the first international film to be nominated for Best Picture in a number of years. Um, I can't remember. That's right, It was. Yeah, I can't remember if El Pistino was. If not, we're talking decades. But it set a bar because guess what? We've had a number of nominees since. We've had Roma. And even a win. Yep, even a win with Parasite. But then we also had Drive My Car. So things are looking pretty good for international cinema over at the Academy Awards. Thanks, Amor.
2: Well, I'm going to lighten things up a bit and take us back to the fun and all the way back to the wedding, and that is with the comedy Palm Springs. Have either of you seen this?
1: I've never even heard of it. I sadly have not gotten around to it, and that's a recent one. I was like last year, right?
2: You guys, it is so much fun. No, it came out in 2020, so I was oh, actually watching it during the great 2020 Oscar prep because it could have gone in for screenplay. Okay. And it's it's a similar premise to Groundhog Day, where Andy Samberg is this character at a wedding and he has to wake up every day and experience things differently. Or, I mean, you know, experience it over and over again slightly differently each time. And Kristen Milioti is the female lead and they play off each other and there's all kinds of shenanigans. But it all takes place at a wedding, I believe Milioti is the bride's sister in this. And, you know, guys, I'm going to say a very controversial opinion here. Modern weddings have gotten out of control.
1: Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah.
2: They are are off the wall, and this is kind of that whole yuppie, look-perfect-for-Instagram wedding. And they make perfect fun of it. And many of the adventures these characters have during the Groundhog Day period involve this wedding and all kinds of misadventures it is very clever very funny the two leads are excellent and i can't give away too much without spoiling that it's a really great little adventure
1: now obviously i haven't seen this and i actually have been meaning to see it because i've heard really good things about it especially during around oscar season maybe that's why i thought it was a 20 2021 film because um i guess it was around that award season yeah yeah If I had to guess, is this the idea that no wedding is perfect so this idea of trying to get it to be perfect is kind of just not worthwhile, just enjoy it for what it is?
2: The wedding's not really the point of the movie, it's the setting. So the characters are both kind of stuck at the wedding but they don't really want to be there and they're sort of bored and that's where all the shenanigans spring from. Especially when they're going through this wedding for the 500th time in a row.
1: (laughs) Which I'm sure is... uh... So that's interesting because... uh... We've had a lot of Groundhog Day type films, but this one sounds like it's two different people going through the same thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, it it it, it gets interesting, let's put it that way.
1: Well, as we like to say on this show, because uh, we can't stop watching stuff and we always find homework to do, I'm going to have to check that out.
2: It's going to take us years to check all of them out.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that does, isn't that a good thing at the same time, knowing that we'll never run out of good movies?
2: Yes. Okay, so we, we've we've been born, and we've all gotten married. So, sadly, we, we've all gotten old, and guess what's happening next? We are headed into the Great Abyss, the last adventure, death.
1: This is the fastest Sims game I've ever played. Jeez, okay. <laughs> so, um, James, what is your, uh, hopefully not too morbid, uh, take on, well, fatality? Well, I
0: decided... Uh... I decided to go for uh, The Grief Over Death Angle and I decided to go with three billboards outside of Ebbing Missouri.
1: Ooh,
0: interesting take. Okay. Starring pod favorite Francis McDormand. So, I picked this film because I think despite being around, you know, for, you know, thousands upon thousands of years, grief over death is still such a thing that is almost impossible to really crack. Like, it happens in many different forms, in many different ways. Everybody does it differently. But just, you know, Frances McDormand's character, almost her refusal to grieve because she's so concerned about what happened to her daughter. And for those who haven't seen the movie, it stars, you know, Francis McDormand as a mother who, you know, lost her teenage daughter, but found out she she was assaulted and murdered. And... She's trying to figure out what's going on, but you know the local law enforcement doesn't really seem to care. She has these billboards, she, like she literally has billboards that she paid for, set up that she's had for a long time, and she continues to pay on. And it's just kind of her journey to just figure out what's going on, and kind of she bullies like law enforcement, um, particularly the officer is played by uh, Sam Rockwell in really good performance, and just the lengths she goes to. To figure out what's going on, like there's, if I remember correctly, there's like one part where she takes a Molotov cocktail and like throws it into an office. I don't know if it was like the police station or not, but don't say too much. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say too much. It's a really, it's a really good watch. Um, I can't remember who was the filmmaker on that one. That's uh,
1: Martin McDonough. Yeah. yeah, he makes really interesting films. Yeah, Three Billboards is a, is a really good one. That's 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 his best film, I would say. A lot of people would say In but I, I, I would I would certainly go with this one myself. But
0: I like In but I also liked um, what was what he did before that Seven Psychopaths.
1: Yeah, Seven Psychopaths. That was a, that was a trip.
0: But yeah, just a, just I guess the lengths the parents will go to, you know, almost it. it It's kind of this like kind of almost revenge angle, but, you know, just this kind of mystery because it's like she doesn't know what happened and you kind of get intercut, you know, their relationship. So it's like, you know, that the other part of grief is that always like what could have been or what could I have done differently? And you kind of see that play out throughout the film.
2: I think that film really revitalized McDormand's career, too. It led to her second and I think arguably her third Oscar, which is incredible.
1: Yeah, you got a good point, because uh, that also led to, like, Tragedy of Macbeth, and, you know, not that she ever, like, really went anywhere, but in terms of her dramatic acting, it was almost like a renaissance.
2: Yeah, I think that these have been her best years yet, and there'll be more to come.
1: I think
0: I know why. It's because she doesn't, she never dated herself, but she also doesn't try to relive her youth. There was actually a really interesting... Clip of an interview where they were talking about how, like, you know, ask her, you know, why she has not followed the trend of plastic surgery. And she basically referred to her face. that She said, like, she's like, this is the roadmap. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is where I've been. And then I'm, I'm still continuing on or something like that. And I always found that very interesting. I think that's why she's able to have such a lasting career is because she doesn't have. Uh, she's had great moments, but there isn't like a she's never really had a peak.
2: And as an actor, she doesn't really trade on her looks the way a lot of actors do.
1: Uh, that's very true. Yeah, it's almost like she's extremely fitting, not just for this casting choice, but for this particular pod, because death isn't just about, you know, the act of death and people dying. It's also welcoming, you know, your older years and knowing that your past is behind you. And that's very Frances McDormandy. Like, Like, um, she's not, so, yeah, doesn't buy into trying to make herself look younger. She's accepted her age all the time. And... Just lives ruthlessly and uh, you know boldly, like very commendable as an actress and also just as a as a human being.
2: So, what did you pick, Andreas?
1: Well, get ready for more, more of and it. And when I say when I say that this is one of the heaviest films of all time, this is certainly one of the heaviest films of all time. But I'll get into why I picked it. I don't recall if either of you seen Come and See.
2: No, but you've told me no, to see it multiple times. But it times.
1: sounds familiar. Another one for the smorgasbord. So, <laughs> this film is uh, first off, it's a doozy. It's uh, uh, when some people say it's like one of the heaviest films they've ever seen. This is for sure, unquestionably one of the heaviest films. Um, this is a World War Two film, specifically a Holocaust a Holocaust film. It's a it's a Soviet directed, and it stars what I would consider the greatest child performance, or you know, he's like a teenager I think, like 13 but the greatest youthful performance I've ever seen, it's Alexei Krevchenko uh, if I pronounce that correctly uh, the film was so difficult, uh, he pretty much never acted again after it, even though he's like phenomenal in it, so what it is, is um, a young boy experiencing World War II, the Holocaust um, you know, stormtroopers bursting in all of that stuff but it's like a very first person type of perspective so like when bombs go off you can like hear the ringing in his ears and it doesn't disappear like you hear it as long as he hears it and you see a lot of stuff from his perspective um very traumatizing film but what specifically led me to picking this film for this topic not just the amount of death that happens. You know, seeing this boy who's had to deal with a lot of loved ones dying, um, but also just the death of innocence. You know, here's this, uh, this, this boy who will forever not be able to be a boy ever again um, because his entire childhood was stripped away from him. Like, there's no way you can come back and feel happy in a world when you go through all the stuff that this young boy goes through in this film. And... um I don't want to give away the ending, but it's one of the most startling endings I've ever seen. Like it's just artistically, symbolically just like just I can't I can't put it into words and I don't want to, but it's the final cherry on top in terms of this podcast and you know the reason why I selected it for this podcast, the idea of the point of no return and questioning in the same way that death is responsible for us going Birth being responsible for us coming. And it brings things very full circle. I don't want to say more than that, but basically, in the loosest sense possible, it's a philosophical take on how did Hitler get to the point that he got to, and would stopping Hitler from being born, would that have been what saved millions of lives? Or it's it's a huge ethical dilemma that this young boy faces. But I don't want to say more than that because it's a monumental ending and one of the most uh, effective endings I've ever seen. So yes, Come and See is a very morbid film. Just a listener beware.
2: Well, I'm afraid mine may be even more of a listener beware. Not because of the scale of tragedy, but because it is extremely personal and because I think most of our viewers may have had a situation in their life where this resonates. Have either of you seen the film How to Die in Oregon?
1: No, 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 I haven't.
2: Okay, it's from 2011, and it is a documentary about, in Canada we call it medical assistance in dying. It is uh, getting the help of a physician to end your life, generally in cases where the person is terminally ill. Mm. So, So euthanasia. Yes. Okay. So... It follows several stories of people who either have chosen to do this or are confronting the possibility or at least mulling over the idea. And this is a very difficult topic. It is extremely personal. It has huge ethical concerns. I'm not looking to debate politically. I just want to talk about this film. It's so moving. It goes into enormous detail about the choices people are making, what their opinions might be, their family situations. And in the end, it's their own autonomy and how they each choose their way, or don't choose, to end their lives. And it's very deep, very personal, and it does follow some people to the end, so use great caution in seeing this film, but it is so compelling and presents such a great picture of this issue that it cannot be missed.
1: No, that sounds uh, definitely poignant for sure. Uh it sounds like a very difficult watch, but um, all, I feel like a lot of these very um, gray area types of topics warrant having some sort of a documentary because um, I feel like it's what it helps people to process maybe how they feel about this, this type of discussion or um, contextualize what they're maybe unsure of. Uh, so how did you find the film in terms of its displaying of its, uh, let's say it's, it's essay of sorts.
2: Well, it is very much on the pro side. Like it doesn't, but it does examine the perspectives of people on the other side as well. Um, I would say that in the way that it gets so personal with these people, and it really focuses on how it's their decision. That's probably its strongest asset. Uh,
1: well, I'm I'm gonna have to check it out. I, once again, <laughs> sounds yeah, good. At
2: that time, I believe Oregon may have been the only state in the U.S. that permitted this. Now, I think more states have joined it. Canada has made it legal as well.
1: Okay, so that makes a lot of sense as to, um, you know, its title and I guess its setting for sure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: James, what about you? How do you feel about about this film? One you want to check out, especially because it's an indie documentary? I might.
0: I don't know. I, I think it's definitely, a, you know, I, I do think it's like as hard as a conversation that is to have. I think it's necessary because it does kind of, regardless of what side you're on, it does kind of open the question. It's like, should there be limits, or should like bodily autonomy be as limitless as you want to take it? Because you know, obviously there are people who are against this, but at the same time, I'm like, are you really someone to tell someone what to do with their own life?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, I don't want to con- uh, court unnecessary um, controversy for this podcast, but. In the end, I think it does come down to what you choose and having the framework to do that in a safe way. Now, there are plenty of ways this can be abused that we want to avoid. And again, there are so many ethical questions, but it's an interesting issue for sure.
1: Yeah, not to sway the boat either, but uh, to echo these sentiments, it's almost like if somebody is going through a tough time and it's literally their final request, like, um, I don't know. I, It's a tough topic for... A lot of people and it's tough to bring up but at the same time it's literally their final request i mean i could see why a lot of people would want to honor that and make sure that they're out of their misery you know like it it's tough it's let's not get too philosophical though uh <laughs> let's uh any more thoughts on how to die in oregon before we uh we wrap up the episode
2: no just go see it
1: and I shall, and I shall. I feel like uh, all three of us are going to be getting some smorgasbord picks stemming from this episode, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But before we get into our weekly recommendations, on the topic of those smorgasbord picks, Rachel, please.
2: Well, uh, first of all, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K Cut, and you can pick up our smorgasbord uh, episodes. We've got uh, Bicycle Thieves, L'Age d'Or by Bunuel, and Schizopolis as our individual picks. And The Cat Returns will be our collective. I just watched it. It's a lot of fun.
1: Ooh, sounds good. Yeah, I've yet to see that one, even though it was uh, my collective, so I'd better get on that. Uh, so, weekly recommendations. James, do you have a random
0: rec? Yeah, so I, I, I wanted to think of a film that kind of encapsulate, encapsulated every single topic. So I'm going to go with Kill Bill by Quentin Tarantino. Ooh. Because it literally has, like, well, there was a wedding, um, there was an assumed death, and then there was a birth. So overall, it's also, I think it's his, that's his actual masterpiece out of his whole filmography, at least in wow. my opinion. I think it's because it's its the one film where he like, it, it hits the mark on everything Tarantino, but it's also, he said it's the only movie he got to shoot the entire screenplay for. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, which is why, you know, it ended up getting split into two movies because he did he, he was able to, like, use everything for this one.
1: Fascinating. Well, on my end, hmm, what's something that is thematically relevant? Um, not quite on the same... Actually, it's... Uh, Kill Bill's also very figurative. I want to go with uh, Paul Schrader's magnum opus, uh, Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. So, this film... And you're going to have to bear with me because I actually forget the... Uh, the author's first name so this film is a very inventive biopic about yukio mishima a japanese political activist and writer and yeah a lot of different things in his life stemming from how he got as big as he did as an influence as a literary influence um you know like who was in his life and ultimately as well as his uh infamous uh, seppuku like how he passed away and and what what led him to doing so so um it's got a magnificent singular score by philip glass one of the greatest scores i've ever heard and paul schrader usually as a director doesn't really know subtlety but in this film he goes overboard and it's the greatest instance of that it's easily the best film that he ever directed mishima life in four chapters
2: Interesting. Well, I'm going to pick Steel Magnolias because it also has all three events, birth, death, and weddings, and it's got some wonderful performances by all its leads. It's a great ensemble cast, and it's the reason why whenever I go to a wedding, I always claim that the colors are going to be blush and bashful.
1: Well, that's another one I'm going to have to check out because I don't get the reference, and I feel like I should.
2: (laughs) Oh, I'll send you the YouTube.
1: Perfect. Sounds good. Well, that was the K-Cut. Thank you for enjoying the episode and taking part in all of our births and marriages and sticking with us until the end of the episode. So, uh, yeah, stick around. Next episode's coming up next Tuesday. Uh, that was the K-Cut. Now we're going into the L-Cut.